0: We are broadcasting from the Power in Practice Alumni Workshop for Commonwealth Financial Network taking place in Orlando, Florida. Topic now, though, is the agriculture industry. What with the trade wars between the United States and China, could farmers in the United States be affected for many years to come. Joining us now to help us answer this question is Tom Halverson. He is the president and the chief executive of CoBank. Assets under management, more than $125 billion. They are based in Denver. CoBank is one of the four banks of the farm credit system. It provides loans, leases, and other financial services to rural communities across the United States. Tom, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us the current state of health of the agriculture industry when it comes to growing soybeans?
2: Certainly, Pam, uh, happy to do that. The fact of the matter is, you know, we are in the midst of this uh, trade turmoil that you've been talking a great deal about uh, as a result of negotiations that have now been underway for quite some period of time. But if you roll the tape back further, the agricultural economy of the United States uh, started softening well back in the 2013 and 14 period. So if you look at the Department of Agriculture's own data on net farm income for example it's 50 percent lower today than it was in 2013 so before uh, the uh, disalignments that we've been experiencing with our nafta partners and with china occurred the agricultural economy was already soft Uh, and the consequences of the negotiations uh, that we've been experiencing over the over the recent months have exacerbated that tendency as a result of uh, the tariffs that we have imposed and the retaliatory tariffs that Mexico, Canada, and China have imposed uh, in, in, in response. So, the uh, agricultural economy was soft before; it's it's softer and, and more vulnerable today.
1: So, Tom, what does that mean in terms of whether the U.S. agricultural industry uh, is headed for a recession? Whether we accept uh, well, whether we expect bankruptcies to pick up as we've seen a little bit uh, in the Upper Midwest?
2: Well, I you know. Let's step back and answer that by recognizing that the agricultural economy is one of the most positive uh, participants in the trade balance of the United States. We have grown U.S. exports of agricultural products over the last 25 years dramatically, and it makes a very positive impact on the trade and current account balance uh, of the country. But you're exactly right. The, the, the fact of the matter is that it's manifesting itself in, in, uh, in stress, in the rural economy and in a wide uh, areas of the of, of the country, that manifests itself in in stress and 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 bankruptcies and difficulties. Looking in various sectors, whether it's you know soybean producers and growers whose whose markets are are under stress, or uh, d- dairy production complex, for example, is experiencing similar uh, levels of stress. And then when you go up to the next level, which is the aggregators of producers' products, agricultural co-ops and the like, uh, they 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 may be uh, experiencing difficulties as well. So there's belt tightening, and that means that people buy less new you know, machinery and equipment, and they're looking for ways to uh, reduce their costs, and they are being caught for the first time in a decade, as the rest of the economy is in a rising interest rate environment, where for many years now uh, interest rates weren't really a significant component of, of uh, production agricultural's cost side uh, it's becoming uh, much more so so for people who entered this period with a, in a from a position of relatively high leverage you know that exacerbates their tensions and their and their credit stress
0: Tom, does this does this uncertainty and this uh, stress that you're describing, does it bleed over into other areas of the agriculture industry? And I'm thinking because, you know, your customers are not just food and agribusiness, but it's rural power, communications, you got water cooperatives, also uh, rural community facilities, agriculture credit associations, you got a variety of customers.
2: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So if you look across <clears throat> wide swaths of the upper Midwest, look at the Dakotas and Nebraska, Montana, for example. Those are just a couple of examples, but there is a very high correlation uh, between the health and well-being of the agricultural economy and the health and well-being of the rural economy as a whole, because all of those uh, industries, as you say, are very highly correlated and and interrelated. So when one of the biggest or the biggest in the case of agriculture uh, suffers, uh, that has big knock-on effects for uh, for the economy as a whole.
1: You know, one thing that I'm struck by is when you were talking about how the entire agricultural industry in the U.S. had been struggling a bit or seeing a slowdown for a number of years, even before the trade tensions. I'm wondering, how much are people blaming trade for things that were already in place before those tensions emerged?
2: Well, that's a good question. People often get, uh, everyone gets confused on the difference between causation and correlation. And, and uh... you know people look at what's happening and they look at the headlines and the like and it's easier to uh... to blame you know another country or a market thing that's uh, beyond your control uh, And i'm sure that there's some of that going on But i find in my experience that that farmers and ranchers and people in the agricultural industry in the united states are some of the most thoughtful smartest well-informed people about what's going on in the world that you could find anywhere and the reason for that is for two two and a half decades now we have dramatically grown our export markets so there are lots and lots of farmers and ranchers who's been all over the world making relationships with their Chinese customers or their or their customers in other parts of the world so they're pretty attentive to what's happening and the underlying causes and and market factors and supply and demand factors that affect the prices for their commodities
0: well in that case what are they doing, or can they do anything, in order to mitigate the effects of these tariff wars?
2: Well, I think everybody—if you go out and ask, uh, go out and ask our customers, or go out and ask people in rural parts of the country—you'll find, yeah, they're all doing things. Number one, they're watching it with great care, uh, and they're trying to take it into consideration uh, as they make their decisions for next year. For example, you know, a harvest of 2018 is done. There's a gigantic crop of, of agricultural commodities uh, that's not being purchased at the moment, uh, for example, in the case of soybeans by China. Uh, and so we have a lot of commodities with no, with no market or an insufficient market. And farmers all over the upper Midwest, for example, are having to decide what are they going to do next year? Are they going to grow as many soybeans as they did this year? Given the state of uh, trade relationships, are they going to, you know, trade – are they going to produce less soybeans and more corn? You know, and that has big knock-on implications on seed suppliers, uh, fertilizer suppliers, you know, machinery manufacturers and all those people. And farmers and ranchers are right now having to try and make decisions uh, about what their capital structure and their business plan is going to be for 2019.
1: Tom Halverson, thank you so much for being with us. It's really uh, an important area to keep an eye on, certainly as we've seen uh, the price of soy in particular really flipping around depending on the trade headlines. Tom Halverson is chief executive officer of CoBank, joining us here where we are broadcasting live from Commonwealth's Power and Practice Alumni Workshop in Orlando, Florida. Coming up, Bloomberg politics, policy, power, and law. A lot to talk about, including about some of the tariffs and trade tensions. Are they easy? Are they not? What are the details? We don't know. Does it for us. I'm Lisa Abramo. along with my co-host and colleague, Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. I
0: want to turn now to one of the headline events of the day. This is really uh, an incredible contribution from a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion, former head of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, writing a column well, I'm going to let Clive Crook uh, sort of little give us the details there, because he was the editor uh, for this particular column. And Clive Crook, uh, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, uh, joins us now from Washington, D.C. Clive, uh, what was it like to actually receive uh, Lord King's uh, column at this
3: particular time when what? Brexit is yeah. is going, coming up for a vote? Sure. Well, it's... Uh It's a fantastic piece. That's the main thing to say about it, in my view. Uh, I think it's the best piece on the subject I've read. And it's a withering attack on Theresa May's uh, Brexit deal. And he explains uh, what's wrong with it, essentially, that it gets uh, the worst of all worlds. You know, it isn't a it isn't a compromise in any meaningful sense. It, it, it sacrifices British sovereignty, and it, and it will cause economic damage as well. So, I mean, it's a terrific piece.
1: Well, Clive, why is he writing this now?
3: Well, I mean, you know, the decision is about to be made. I, I'm sure he well, wants to influence it. He's calling well, on Parliament to reject the deal. And uh, if they read the piece and think about it, I think they might well decide to do just that.
1: Well, and the idea being that the deal is the worst of both worlds, as you were just saying, I guess what I'm trying to understand is, is he trying to sort of augur for what uh, the European Union uh, judge just ruled, which is perhaps take a revote and try to undo Brexit altogether?
3: Well, I think his position in this column is not, um, you know, pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit. It's against this specific deal. Um, so, you know, I think there's another you know, it's a separate issue, really. You know, what happens next? What kind of deal Britain should seek? But the point is that this particular deal that's on the table is is terrible. That's what that's what uh, Mervyn King is arguing. Um, so it doesn't really go to the question of, you know, so do we have a no deal Brexit or do we do we stay in? Um, that's not what he's grappling with. He's saying this particular deal is the result of, as he puts it, monumental incompetence and he calls it a betrayal of Britain. So it's this deal that's bad. Now the ECJ uh, well it isn't an ECJ ruling. you know it, it's it's advice from um, uh, a lawyer that the ECJ uh, usually takes very seriously. Um, so I do think it's increased the chances that Britain could unilaterally, uh, revoke Article 50 and put the whole process on pause. Um, but it does need to be noted that uh, you know the European Commission is arguing the opposite and the European Union's leaders are also of the view that revoking Article 50 and halting this process in its tracks would require the unanimous agreement of the other European governments. So although this advice, I think, increases the probability that the court itself will rule that a unilateral revocation is possible. It doesn't make it a done deal by any means, and the Commission and the European Union's leaders are pushing back against that view. What has been the reaction from European leaders, and would they want Britain to come back into the European (laughs) Union? Well, that is an excellent question. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is yet. I mean, the truth is they haven't really... Uh, addressed it collectively. You know, there is no, as it were, uh, agreed European Union view on this. Some European Union leaders have said that they want Britain to stay in. But um, I don't think that view would be unanimous myself. I think if Britain did revoke uh, Article 50. Um, I think some EU leaders might wonder if that was actually in in the interest of the European Union. You know, many people in Europe are as uh, sick of the Brexit process (laughs) as many people in Britain are. And I think they just want Britain and their complaints to go away. So I don't think, you know, Britain would be welcomed back unanimously with open arms by any means.
1: Well, Clive, just in 30 seconds here, I'm wondering what's the risk and and how much does it go up that there is a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit, which is a worst-case scenario for a lot of people, if this deal is rejected?
3: I think it is a significant risk. Um, I think, um, you know, because the problem is that it's the default option. Time is running out now, and if nothing else happens... Britain leaves the European Union on March 29th. So interventions are necessary to stop that process. And um, I think there is a risk almost by accident um, that Britain might decide it, it wants to stay after all or it wants to slow this process down. And it might just not be possible to do that. So I think a hard Brexit is a real, uh, a real possibility.
1: Clive Crook. Thank you so much for being with us. Clive Crook, Bloomberg Opinion Editor, talking about that fabulous Mervyn King uh, column. Mervyn King, of course, is former Bank of England governor talking about how the current deal on the table waiting to be voted for is the worst of both worlds, arguing against voting for it. Meanwhile, perhaps there's a little bit of a glimmer saying that perhaps there's a chance for them to take a re-vote on Brexit. We are broadcasting live from Commonwealth's Power in Practice Alumni Workshop in Orlando, Florida. And we are joined by Mariana Goldenberg, founder of Curo Wealth Management. Mariana, I'm so glad that you're here uh, because there have been a series of tax changes that have actually changed the calculus for some people, including, as we've discussed on this show, uh, with respect to divorce, because after this year, I believe alimony payments will not be tax deductible. So I'm curious from you whether you're seeing more people taking that into account, expediting their uh, divorces uh, this year, and what you're expecting into year-end.
4: Thank you, Lisa, for having me on your show. I'm very honored, and thank you, my broker-dealer, Commonwealth Financial, and Joni in particular, for having me on the show. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, I do see quite a bit of divorces happening today due to the changes in the tax law. Just a little bit of a background: I am a certified divorce financial analyst, which is a designation that uh, you receive uh, and helps you understand the laws, the divorce laws from legal standpoint, and also also financial ramifications of um, going through divorce. Um, as you discussed before, there are some changes happening uh, in 2019. The alimony uh, that used to be deductible for people paying the alimony and taxable for the receivers is no longer be uh, taxed. So uh, what's happening now, people are rushing in to settle their divorces before the end of the year because they will be grandfathered starting in 2019. Uh, and it's quite an interesting phenomena, because people are trying to figure out the creative ways to uh, to s- split the assets and make sure that two parties uh, separate for the rest of their life and stay financially um, strong and ha- able to build back their resources after they go through divorce. So that's that's what's been happening uh, in different areas and i think uh specifically women get really short-changed in this whole rush to do this because they don't quite understand what that means to them financially down the road everything looks at it today okay today it's going to cost me x number of dollars in taxes they don't look at what it will be in the future uh, if I settle with retirement funds, am I able to live comfortably down the road using these funds? Or am I better off taking the taxable uh, investments and create a cash flow from there? So I think that's the rush decision that that unfortunately is caused by the new regulations. But I think there'll be much more creative ways of handling down the road. Um, if people spend time and, and look at the overall picture, not at what's happening today.
0: Mariana, you—excuse <coughs> me—you earned a degree in mathematics and finance from the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Many yep. people are familiar with that. How many people are familiar with the designation Certified Divorce Financial Analyst?
4: <coughs> Thank you for asking. Um, it's it's a question that I've been asked a lot. When I initially uh, received the designation was in two, uh, about eight years ago, and there are not that many of us that were doing that. Uh, today I see it much and much more. The reason I looked into this and I thought it would be very um, hope, uh, helpful for me in my practice is because as I've, my practice matured from starting at Merrill in 1993 and spending 10 years there and another 11 at LPL, I realized that more and more of my clients are becoming a women that are referring other women um, because they either were stay-at-home moms that needed help with finances or they were very successful executives that were busy building their career and not having enough time spent on the financial side of it or taking uh, or using their employee um, I'm sorry employer benefits to better their life. So to me this was an ability to learn something that I didn't know on the legal side and ability to work with um, other advisors such as their attorneys or CPAs to make sure that as a team we look at the well-being of, of people.
1: Just 30 seconds, I'm wondering, have you seen uh, fewer or more women wanting to go into the uh,
4: advisory business? Um, I wish I could say I see more. It's much more than I started. Uh, the statistics are showing that when I started there was about five women for each 100 female (laughs) or male advisors and right now I've been seeing 16% where at Commonwealth it's a little higher we're about 19% female advisors which is phenomenal
0: thank you very much for being with us and uh, sharing all this information much appreciated Mariana Goldenberg is the founder of Curo Wealth Management they are based in Langhorne Pennsylvania we are broadcasting from the Power in Practice Alumni Workshop for Commonwealth Financial Network in Orlando, Florida.
1: You're going to Disney World? I don't think so.
0: I think maybe our engineering expert, Charlie Vollmer, will make a trip to Disney World. But
1: you're wearing your uh, (coughs) Mickey Mouse ears.
0: No, no. These are my own. (laughs) (laughs) I I know it's confusing, but these are my own. Thank you for that. We are broadcasting from the power in practice alumni workshop at commonwealth financial network's annual meeting here in orlando florida joining us now is tim Desetti. he is a senior partner at infinitas they are based in overland kansas but he joins us here on site tim thank you very much for being here i want to jump right into it because i think one of the issues that you have experience with is crucial to the industry and that is handling consolidation and mergers how do you put together disparate organizations that all say they want to help the client but they have a right. different toolkit and maybe a different you know level of experience in doing that what has been your uh, your experience
5: uh yeah thank you pam yeah it's uh it's been a fun and interesting ride over the last few years you know we had the uh, we had that kind of combination of uh, perception and reality in the world in terms of uh Uh, You know, a lot of the huge, larger firms are are perceived to be the best firms. And and what we really had, you know, uh, strength in in being associated with Commonwealth Financial Network, you know, we had a a group of advisors that we really considered to be some of the best advisors in the marketplace. And uh, we really wanted to to bring a consolidated firm together so that we could, you know, make each other better, uh, you know, battle some of those perceptions in the world that if you just don't have – umpteen billion dollars under management. You're just not a good firm. So, uh,
1: so how much consolidation have you seen over the past few years? I mean, has it been accelerating?
5: Well, Kansas City's been kind of a hotbed for that. I mean, the the vast majority of the big firms are are mostly doing it through acquisition, uh, acquiring other practices, trying to get bigger. Um, ours was not a story of acquisition, but more of a story of just merger, merging practices together so that we could uh, uh, make each other better, uh, take advantage of. Uh, talent and specialized areas of planning, uh, but it's, it's an absolute trend. You go across the country and talk to other advisors that everywhere, people are talking about some form of...
1: Have you ever seen faster rates of consolidation in the industry?
5: I haven't. No, I mean, it's, it's uh, very, very prevalent in, in the Midwest for sure. What kinds of back
0: office issues do you face most when you try to combine different practices?
5: Well, there's, there's always a battle of culture. You know, We uh, part of the reason is to, to be better for your clients, but you also want to make an environment that's better for your team. You know, we have a tremendous staff and, and team in Kansas City, and, and uh, working together has been of, of benefit to them as well. So culture is a big challenge. Um, you know, we're, we're all very successful financial advisors, so, you know, uh, getting everybody to be on one page in terms of a team vision, in terms of what we want to accomplish for our clients, what we want to accomplish in the marketplace. You ever have you
0: ever, ever have a room where just where you realize there's either not enough oxygen or there <laughs> are too many big
5: heads in the room? Now, You know, I, I, I perceive that that could exist, and I, and I know the room that we have there in Kansas City, but it's often uh, more a story of just people looking for uh, that greater good, uh, you know, greater good for one another for their own practice but as well for their clients so we've had a really good go of it
1: so how much is the consolidation just uh, joining forces and sort of providing uh you know counterpoints for one another in terms of skills and, and assets and how much is trying to gain uh, economies of scale and then downsizing in certain areas
5: yeah absolutely there's all there absolutely was the reality of economy of scale you know looking at the numbers and saying look we're, we're in a uh, as Matt had said before, you know, we're in a fee consolidation type industry. We want to have reasonable fees for our clients. Everybody's much more aware uh, of, of fees, you know, whether it be through DOL or just through being, you know, just the fee-based progression in the business. So economy of scale was a, was a factor. You know, we were able to consolidate a, a large group of firms and not really decrease our costs necessarily, but definitely not increase our costs and, and get more physical uh... goods so to speak for the consolidation but but the bigger part of it is, is really the specialization being able to to work with other advisors that might specialize in uh... special needs families that might specialize in executive stock options that might specialize in retirement plan uh... you know fiduciary management so just it's you can't be all things to all people but with the right size firm you can be in a better way
0: what what's your view of where people are taking risk where they shouldn't right now where where are they taking risk that they that they shouldn't should they should people take some of their gains and be happy or do you feel because you know we're pretty long into the bull market
5: yeah you know statistically speaking though you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of gain probably still yet to come. We're in, we're in a really good economy. Um, I think, you know, Pim, maybe the opposite is some cases true. People have been too conservative uh, and not, you know, and missing out. I, I can't replace money that you miss out if you miss out on being in the market. I have people come to me and say, you know, I've been in cash for five years. I, I'm ready now. <laughs> okay, well, we I can't replace that that loss in terms of your loss on the upside. So I, I think it's a balance, you know. It, Simply speaking, one of three things is going to happen. It's going to go up, it's going to go down, it's going to stay the same. You've got to have a strategy to make money in every one of those environments. And, uh, you know, that's the approach we're taking.
1: Tim DeSetti, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Tim DeSetti. Absolutely. Thank you, Lisa. Senior partner at Infinitas, uh, talking about the rash of mergers and acquisitions, the fastest pace, PIM. Uh, that he has ever seen. Uh, We are broadcasting live from Commonwealth's Power and Practice Alumni Workshop in Orlando. Just want to get you Uh, caught up on the market because what we are seeing is a deepening sell-off with the NASDAQ now leading the way down uh, down about nine-tenths of 1%. Pam, a lot of- Also,
0: oil has turned lower, by the way. Yeah. Oil was higher, now I mean, basically unchanged, but it has turned lower in the late morning trading.
1: It's just interesting. And I do have to wonder, going back to what we were talking about with Dave, how much is this being driven by signals from inverting yield curves? And how much is this from some of the conflicting messages that we've gotten out of the White House with respect to how concrete a trade truce really is with the U.S. and China? I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co host and colleague, Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg.